Hi, it's Tyson Yankapola. This is the Other Others uh, a podcast re- recording all the yarns that are um, building into the Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab at Deakin University in Melbourne. Um, I'm recording this in Bunurong country. Uh, so pay my respects to all the old people from here. Uh, lands, waters and all the entities in country. Uh, now this one today is uh, a beautiful conversation. Um, it was originally recorded uh, recently as part of a, a different podcast at RMIT University, uh, a disconnect uh, that I'm making there about Indigenous engagement with the internet. Um, but I know we're not going to use very much of it for that, like maybe five minutes or something, um, you know, because it's a short podcast. But this is a, an amazing, big, beautiful conversation uh, with the Waramai man, a man from the Waramai people, uh, Dean Sanders. Uh, he works at Deloitte. Uh, he's been many things, though, lawyer, psychologist. He's um, um, He's got letters after his name. I don't even know what it means, OAM. Or, uh, he's uh, a professor, um, very accomplished man. And, um, yeah, um, a really um, close friend of mine, almost like family, so uh, we call each other brother. Um, We're having a long, free-range yarn here about um, disinformation, uh, which we call wrong story, and uh, bad faith discourse, and all these sorts of things, the impact... uh, these things proliferating out in the world is having uh, on our communities at home and uh, what sort of light that analysis might shed for the rest of the world. That's him. So we're on. Ah. Brother Dean, Uh, we'll get started. This is, um, so this is the Disconnect podcast. Um, out of RMIT, funded by Telstra. Um, uh, do you want to introduce yourself and sort of, you know, who you are in our culture and what you do? Yeah, thanks, brother. It, um, yeah, so my name is Dean Sanders. I'm a Waramai man from mid-north coast New South Wales. Um, I spend most of my day um, working one of these large sort of corporate consultancies by day. And then by night, I'm a Waramai warrior <laughs> in terms of culture. It, um I'd say that um, I, I think I'm probably one of the, yeah, you know, one of the examples of Aboriginal people that we see around us in society everywhere, where we've lived, we've lived different sorts of lives and multiple sorts of lives, and try to bring those lives together now in a lot of the work that I do. So I'm a I'm a psychologist originally, then trained in law for a long time and worked in government. Um, and across corporates. But now I want to spend most of my time and do spend most of my time bringing my cultural traditions and frameworks to the conversation about how all of those things should change and can change and would benefit from change if we brought Indigenous knowledge systems into play. Mm. How do we become better Australians and a better Australia by using Indigenous knowledge systems as the basis of our knowledge rather than these um, fly-by-night, Johnny-come-lately Western systems? Yeah. Well, there are there are a lot of uh, things that are confounding that work. Um, you know, there's uh, a lot of noise getting in way in the way of the signal. Um, 
you know, particularly uh, something I've noticed a, a lot lately is the problem of uh, disinformation and misinformation. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of the radicalization of people to, um, you know, through a lot of uh, disinformation and misinformation. And I'm wondering um, about the impacts of that on our communities. Because um, I, I have seen a few disturbing things around the place, as I'm sure you have um, also. So I guess the, the difference between, I mean, misinformation is if you give somebody the wrong directions when they ask you for directions and then you laugh at them. Um, but I guess disinformation is when you give them the wrong directions to send them down a dark alley where your cousin's waiting to beat them up and steal their wallet. You know, <laughs> that's, that's a, I think that's a good metaphor for uh, disinformation and misinformation. I think there's a fair bit of disinformation kicking around. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, especially young people are on YouTube and, um, in a lot of so social media platforms and Facebook where their algorithms are sending them a lot of um, a lot of disinformation. Uh, have, you, have you come across uh, many problems with that happening? Yeah, look, I, I have, you know, right across community, really, and not, not just, and it's not just in rural and remote community, it's, 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 um, it's everywhere. Um, it's in our urban centres, it's, it's part of the daily conversation in community. But I think my immediate sort of response to that is that I think we tend to, um, it's a complex sort of analysis to engage in the idea of what is misinformation versus disinformation, because the minute you move into a disinformation space, you begin to look for a perpetrator. Mm. You know, who, who, who is the agent behind the disinformation? Um, and that takes you down a very dark alleyway where your cousins are waiting. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think instead the, um, the, the way I tend to think about this is the idea of how are we responding to that information, whether it be misinformation or disinformation, what does that set up for us, the receiver of that information? And I think mm. that's where it gets really interesting mm. because... Um, you know, most of our people, and this is not only true of Indigenous Australia, but I think it's, I think it's particularly strong in, in, in our people in thinking about the idea that most of that information, when it, is, when it is taken into the system, and I use that word deliberately, taken into the system, becomes part of an overarching wrong story. Mm. You know, this, this idea that we are reacting to something, you know, we're reacting to powerlessness or reacting to fear or we're reacting to a whole raft of things. And it, so, so misinformation, disinformation feeds into fertile ground. Mm. And that fertile ground of fear and anger and powerlessness um, is what gives rise to this sort of, you know, mm. reactive response to misinformation. And wrong um, story is a, a really important term there. And maybe we need to expand on that, the difference between wrong story and right story. Yeah. You know, because the way we come into knowledge and in information in our culture um, and we've talked about this before, is that, um, you know, when something new comes along, like uh, COVID was a good example, you know, um, elders and communities are looking for what's the story of this virus? Where does it come from? And what's its uh, originating story? You know, because you want to get to that foundational narrative and figure out how it fits into uh, creation and into the dreaming. You know, does this thing have a dreaming? And what is that? Uh, that's how we that's start. Because, yeah, it's also because, as you know, when we, when we begin to understand the right story for something, then that triggers in a cultural context, all of our appropriate responsibilities. Yeah. You know, what, what's, what's our job in the face of a right story? 
um, you know, how does it change our responsibility as senior people or, or, or in community? Whereas if it's a wrong story, we don't know how to deal with it. And wrong stories give rise to wrong action, um, certainly wrong interpretation, which then gives rise to wrong action. And that's where I think we go down this rabbit hole with these types of misinformation, disinformations that then lead to conspiracy. <laughs> and suddenly we find ourselves back in that dark alley. Yeah. Um, well, well, I've seen quite a bit of the wrong story uh, from the alt-right in the United States, um, you know, coming across into community, um, like quite a bit of anti-Semitic stuff and the idea of, you know, these Jewish conspiracy theories, um, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, Jews are running the media and uh, <laughs> all this kind of stuff and that, you know, Jews are destroying the Aboriginal community. Um, I've heard quite a bit of really disturbing stuff uh, um, from that side of things. Um, you know, uh, talking about, you know, new waves of genocide that are coming from these uh, big uh, globalist elite, um, you know, conspirators, these uh, these global elites, you know, who are pretty much uh, linked to anybody, you know, who's green or left-leaning uh, sort of tends to be thrown into that basket of, um, you know, elites. And, and, and uh, usually... Yeah, usually they're very big crowd at the back of that dark alley. Yeah, well, it's connecting that with uh, pedophilia as well. So you're seeing a lot of the same kind of stuff that led to the storming of the Capitol um, in in the United States. You know, a lot of those ideas, those uh, conspiracies about you know uh, pedophile rings, you know, in the government and all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, you, you're seeing quite a bit of that starting to come through in, in uh, you know in Indigenous tweets and you know, Facebook pages and different groups. You know, I think though that there's a, I think there is a bit of a unifying theme to some of that sort of perspective though. And and I have mm. sympathy for it because it, it, it comes from, well, it actually even comes from our, from our own wrong story. Mm. You know, the wrong story of powerlessness, as I mentioned earlier, the idea that, that what, what, what all of those stories have in common is that the agent of evil there is somebody other than us and somebody away from us, somebody distant from us. We can't see, we don't know them, we can't control them, we can't even imagine what their environment is, but they're affecting me. You know, they're, they're raining pain on me, they're taking things from me. That's, that, that's actually an essential part of the narrative, mm. that I don't know who these people are, but they're taking things from me. That's really an important part of the narrative because, as you know, if we flip that into an Indigenous context, that's the complete opposite of our world. Mm. where all of our authority is local. All of our connections are direct and relational. Yeah. So our universe was known, wholly known, in the system within which we lived. Even yeah. as vast a landscape as Australia might be, you know, our relationship to our country, our relationship to our people, to our plants, to our brothers and sisters in the plant kingdom, they were, it was deeply relational. So we knew everything and we knew of everything. Mm. Contrast that with the sort of conspiracy stories that emerge where it's all about powerlessness. And I can't see these evil people that are affecting me. They're somewhere in the rest of the world over there. Mm. Uh, they've got control of me. And I don't know how they've got control of me. Well, it's not completely unjustified, you know, historically, you know, um, you know, throughout all the, the in, invasions and, and the genocides that have happened and been covered up, um, you know, and, and constantly denied and that are still being denied, you know, um, you know, these are things that have really happened and are still in the living memory of a lot of people, you know. So, uh, you know, when somebody turns around and says, you know, 
Bill Gates is uh, doing a genocide on Indigenous Australia through, you know, nanobots in <laughs> in vaccines or whatever, then it's, um, you know, it, it, you don't dismiss it just out of hand. Well, you, you know, know what? Just the historically, seeds, we know uh, things have happened. Well, the, the seeds of truth in that history are written in our landscape, and we we are almost the experiment. We're like the we're like the mice in the Douglas Adams Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, we are the little machines in the computational algorithm trying to work out model the answer. So, so the, the the originating stories of modern Australia are, of course, that powers on the other side of this planet determined in a small, tiny little room um, that this country was empty. Um, that there was nobody here that they needed to pay attention to in terms of governance or relationships or obligation, and they could just write off the entire nation and all of its peoples. That decision made on the other side of the world is the original sin that governs and structures most of this sense of powerless amongst our people now. So it's not, you're quite right. Australia is the living example of that distant decision-making um, that has that is that, that models these conspiracies. So I'm not at all surprised that our that, that our people fall into these natural conspiracies because, yeah. of course, it was true. It was absolutely true. Absolutely. So I mean, that leaves us quite vulnerable to being recruited by people. I mean, so there is something called the New South Wales Freedom Keepers Team. Um, the basketball been- team. Netball team? Tweeted about quite a bit. I don't think they're a sporting team, Um, but they they talk, I mean, they're amplifying Aboriginal uh, voices, hashtag just asking uh, important questions and encouraging them up to investigate before consenting to an experimental vaccine. You know, um, you know, there's just, and there's just a few alarm bells that pop up there because, I mean, they're not called the, you know, find out your information before you get jabbed team. They're the freedom keepers team. You know, so that freedom language coming out of the libertarian right in the United States, but also this just asking stuff. Just asking is a very disingenuous uh, phrase to put at the end of a or end of the or at the beginning of a question. I found a lot. Um, it's a way of saying something incredibly racist, but framing it as a question or saying something that's disinformation. Like you know, um, well, I you know, I'm just asking just asking but how come there are so many uh you know jewish people involved in finance uh and the entertainment industry and then you know so a jewish person responds and tells the entire history of well you know for hundreds of years when we were in europe um you know those two professions were considered to be dirty professions that nobody else could do and we weren't allowed into any of the guilds to do any other professions so we were given those professions to do so you know we've inherited those um, so I've answered your question, but that they don't take that as an answer. They keep saying the question, Hey, just asking, but it's not just asking. It's just telling, you know, in, in fact, it's, it's, a, it's getting across a really racist idea. And I know this because I hear it all the time. You know, uh, settler Australians are always approaching me and saying, you know, just asking, uh, but how come so many people, so many men in Aboriginal communities are pedophiles? You know what I mean? Um, just, you know, horrendous things like that, that is kind of just, oh, I'm justifying it by just asking. I'm really curious to know, you know, but it's not, they're not asking you about why we're pedophiles. There's that big assumption in there that's being asserted, you know, where someone just wants to come up and call you a pedophile, you know? Um, there's a lot of racist stuff 
uh, that happens there. Maybe I should redo that soundbite without the pedophile thing. And I don't know how many times you can say the P word in a <laughs> in a podcast. We'll get, but, a, you know, we'll get a special rating. Yeah, the, the just asking thing. Just asking, how come there's so much domestic violence, you know? How come Aboriginal men are so violent? Just asking. You know, you hear this all the time from the right, and you have for years, and it's really interesting to me to suddenly hear a lot of Aboriginal people saying this as well. Um, you know, but surrounding, uh, you know, a lot of COVID conspiracy theories as well, you hear this just asking, just asking, you know, you know, why is Bill Gates, you know, bloody, bloody, blah, you know, why is Bill Gates so interested in genocide? Uh, you know, like these, uh, these questions that aren't questions, you know, I so you get a, a few powerful point, you know, yeah. a, a question that isn't a question. And I think, I think that sits behind, I think the thing, the thing that draws some of those, even the QAnon sort of example, one of my favorites is the idea of do the research, you know, that, that, that phrase, do the research, when of course, they're not actually wanting anybody to do the research. There is no actual research. But if you yeah. use the word do the research, it's like, it's like imbuing the word with magical powers. Yeah. Um, research. Research means read this paragraph that's been cut out of Facebook. And yeah. That's not, that's not research. Well, it's like Same a disclaimer. Thing. It's just like, hey, that's don't right. listen to me. Do your own research. Right. And, yeah, the research is just, you know, follow the algorithm down the rabbit hole for a bit. Right. You know, you'll find plenty of people who say what I'm saying and, hey, I'm just asking. Um, but there, there's a few there's a few red flags in a lot of the in, in indigenous content I've seen lately. So there's that just asking thing, um, you know. But there's a lot of both sidesism going on as well. It's like oh, you got to hit both sides of the argument, you know. So there's like you know the science, and then there's you know oh well you've got to have you know fifty fifty for the pseudoscience, you know, so that it's fair left and right. Um, you know, so a lot of uh, what about isms, like they're, they're always saying, well, what about the left? You know, how come they're allowed to say this and we're not? Like, uh, oh, for example, um, you know, so the left might be referring to, you know, uh, concentration camp like facilities for um, uh, immigrants, you know, um, for people who've been detained uh, trying to enter the country. And they might refer to those as being like, um, uh, concentration camps right but then the you know um you know, some of these other kind of libertarian alt-right sort of types and the QAnon sort of crowd which there's a disturbing amount of uh, aboriginal QAnon supporters popping up around the place then they'll they'll say oh we have to wear all these masks and it's just a big conspiracy you know it's like living in a concentration camp and someone will go oh that's a bit offensive and say well what about when the left does it how come it's all right for the left to talk about concentration camps, but we're not allowed to, you know? So there's that whataboutism. There's the just asking, you know, you can see these discourses running through. You can see these, uh, you know, things coming through and you don't just pick that up from nowhere. You're not getting that in the mainstream media. Where are you getting it? You know, you're getting it on YouTube. You're getting it on Facebook. Uh, you're getting it from these kinds of things, you know? I used to think for a long time that, um, that sometimes you do have to let these debates run because mm. ultimately um, facts will prove themselves and, and, and you know, people, people in right mind will change their mind in the, in the face of different facts. Um, but that's the Western way of thinking about this, is that, which to your point is about both sides, you've got to hear both sides. This idea that somehow there is an equality 
or even an equation between those things. But law, if I think about Western law and my training in that space, there's this sort of principle of equal standing as though as though both parties in opposition to this conversation have equal standing. Well, the truth is our, our people have never had equal standing in any circumstance when yeah. it comes to the negotiation of law. So yeah. equal standing is also a fiction of law. It's a fiction. It's, it, what they really mean is two lawyers. You know, two lawyers may have equal standing, but the parties they represent clearly don't have equal standing. So it's a, it's a fiction. But uh-huh. I now, but if I flip it over to the cultural side, all of that still takes me back, you know, to the wrong story, right story line. Yeah. That, that what you're talking about is that all of those wrong stories that get told or that we want to drape ourselves in or the QAnon sort of voice wants to drape itself in um, needs justification from the Western system. Whereas in our sort of cultural traditions, the wrong story was pretty obvious. Like it, 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 and we all think this is obvious. We all see these wrong stories for what they are, but mm. we don't any longer have, or many of these people don't have a law tradition or a framework of law, a framework of right story mm. to inform them about this, mm. um, about what, about to the point of the old people up in, uh, up in um, the younger country talking about the virus, um, wanting to understand the right story of this virus. And that, 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 I still think that's one of the most amazing stories in the context of COVID. Yeah. You know, that, that, that people wanted to understand the right story of a virus so they knew then what their responsibility was and where this sits in the context of law. Imagine if we applied that same set of principles to some of this QAnon stuff. Yeah. Um, or some of the other things. It would just evaporate. Yeah. But right story or wrong story, you know, in our way, um, you're simply not allowed to try and force your story uh, upon people or a group of people to become the dominant narrative. You know, all stories are welcome around the table and everything's considered, you know, and um, and we develop, you know, a consensus reality together uh, with one mind. Um is how things have always operated and it's it's how things uh, still operate now when things are going right uh, but I think what's happening online is a lot of people are being you know individuated or individualized you know to the point where they they think that you know whatever they're saying or thinking is right and therefore it's the top story the top narrative and that that should come out on top and that anybody who doesn't think the same way is um is somehow their enemy uh, is a pattern I'm seeing not just online, uh, but also in multiple interactions, you know, face-to-face in our communities, uh, particularly with younger people now. Well, I think that, I think that is, I mean, when I think about wrong story, one of the central features of wrong story is meism. Is it, it's about me or, 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 or I, you know, wrong story usually has an I in there somewhere or, or a me in there somewhere at its root or in its language. Whereas, of course, yeah. right story is, is a weism story. Right story is about we. It's a, and, and not just we, the people, but we, the land, we, the system. You know, we as custodians for the entire system is where right story, as you know, comes from and emerges from. Mm-hmm. Whereas wrong story is always, always has a tone of me about it and a tone of I about it. Yeah. Well, you know, if thinking about uh, the law and the land um, and the law of the land, uh, the land rights movement in Australia historically has always been about that. It's always has that that solid grounding and foundation in law. Uh, but I guess in recent decades, it's taken a bit of a backseat, you know, to native title and other things. But I mean, you've got a few of those old uh, diehard land, land rights activists who've kind of been uh, left behind. And I've noticed quite a few of them have been uh, radicalised online 
um, by something in the United States that's called the Sovereign Citizen Movement. And uh, the Sovereign Citizen Movement um, is all about some some very crazy ideas that, um, you know, the, the Western legal system is based on admiralty law and that the court represents a ship at sea, and but it's on solid land, so therefore it shouldn't apply to you as long as you tell the judge that you know this is a ship this is supposed to be a ship and it's not really um you know and, and if you you know see the flag hanging in a certain way then that's <laughs> then that's gammon or something um but th- there's a lot of uh weird stuff tied up with that so a lot of things like you know your birth certificate is a um is some kind of receipt uh because the australian government is a corporation that's trading insolvent and it's sold all of us to its uh creditors um, and you know, um, that if you could just stand up in court and assert that, uh, you are not your name on your birth certificate, but you are a, a sovereign, uh, free walking, talking, breathing human being that they have to just let you go and you get to walk out of court scot-free. Um, now that sounds insane to a lot of people. Um, but a lot of people really take it seriously and you can <laughs> see a lot of examples online of people trying it in court and just failing abysmally. Um, as well I've, I've I've noticed that but I've also noticed that quite a few of our kind of bush lawyers I guess in a way in the Aboriginal community are starting to use um, that same language and that same theory but they're mixing it in uh, with you know Marbo and Wick and <laughs> so they're tying it in with um, you, you know uh, native title sort of uh, cases and decisions and um you know, and rightly sort of calling out the Australian government as, you know, that the, that the colony is an illegal colony, um, you know, and so it, it has no right to, um, uh, to administer justice to Aboriginal people. Um, and I've seen a good argument that, you know, this is supposed to be a jury of my peers, but these aren't my peers. You have to get Aboriginal people from my community. You know, if you good and interesting arguments like that but it's mixed in with and diluted by a lot of the craziest stuff from the united states um and i think that goes to the heart of it doesn't it look i'm I'm prepared to travel down this dark alley with you brother it um it um you know it's it's getting hip, busier and heavier down there with all those people beating up on us but um what what i what you've opened up there i think is there's quite a lot that is founded in sources of kernels of truth yeah and it's like all good conspiracy theories you know there 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 are kernels of truth to this and importantly um there are things that we can hang on to um because you're quite right that australia itself or the concept of australia is is indeed one big legal experiment um that i suspect we still have a lot to play out in um and and there are some foundational flaws as everybody knows in the construct of this australia and certainly the certainly the legal framework for the country. Um, and so things like sovereign citizen and even land title claims in, you know, plays into that. The sovereign citizen stuff, though, I see a strong link to the sort of earlier thread we were talking about around powerlessness because the sovereign citizen movement essentially is about um, that, as you say, each person is sovereign um, and cannot be subject to government authority unless they've personally signed on in some particular way, which is where the sort of faux birth certificate idea comes in, you know, that you were signed on by your parents or some sort of, some sort of evidentiary piece of paper exists that links you into the government's authority. But, but the principle of each person being sovereign um, is an interesting one. 
I've got there's a cultural perspective on that, which of course, you know, if you, as any elder would tell you, if any person said, "Look, I'm I'm in charge of myself and I'm sovereign," you get a smack upside the head pretty, pretty quick and tell to shut up and sit down. True God. Nobody, but nobody at the same sovereign. time, at the same time, nobody boss blame me. That's that's right. Both of those things are true at the same exactly time. Right. Exactly right. That's the beauty of the system. But um, so, so, so even so, even within a cultural context, that sovereignty and that form of identity doesn't doesn't hold water from a cultural perspective. But but there is sort of you know where I think the linkage is, and where I think the kernel of truth in this is the reason I think it the reason I think it gets magnified from the from the libertarian perspectives of the US is that it is still built on this principle that government is distant from me. Government operates at a distance um, and, 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 and they exert power over me that I can't control and I can't influence. So that's powerlessness again. So in the US, it's the sorry, idea of anti-federal. You know, the, the federal government is their enemy because it's distant from them and there are layers of government between them and the federal government. We have the same argument here with the Commonwealth, that if you're sitting in, in, in communities somewhere in Central Desert or, frankly, Redfern, um, it's, it is difficult to see how the authority of the Commonwealth should exert its influence over you when you are sitting in the environment you're sitting in. So that, that argument of distance is a shared reason for why this, I think, takes off. Um, now, there is errors of thinking in that in relation to principles of law, which we, which we can talk about. But there's also fundamentally errors of principle in that when you talk about concept of culture and authority. And that's what, that, I think, is what constantly fascinates me about this. The most strident Aboriginal voices will sometimes use these arguments without realising that they are, they are actually undermining their entire cultural right story in the, in the, in, in the nature of those arguments. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I mentioned before, I mean, one of the things that's interesting, one of the things I love about one of the things I do love about the sort of conspiracy alignment is, as I said, there's enough, if you squint sideways, you can sort of see a bit of truth. But, you know, authority is, of course, in Indigenous culture, authority is wholly local, like entirely local, like within you and the five and ten people, the members of your family. And then, and then as it ex- expands into that, into your clan groups and, and um, nation groups and skin groups. And so authority, authority, but authority ultimately is very local. It's in the landscape within which you live. Yeah. Yeah, my people are the Warringal people of the Warramai nation. So, they're people of the streams. So literally my, my community was, were, were, were freshwater people in a saltwater country um, in the river systems around Gloucester in New South Wales. Now, that's, that, that, there's a big river there, but it's just a river and, and it's, a, it's 10 kilometres of, of area. The, that, that 10 kilometre area of land governed our entire life in existence. Mm. Yeah, all the knowledge and law emerges from that land. And, of course, our shared experience and songline stories across the rest of the community, but it's very local. Um, and the concept, the context and the consequences are local. So you know that if something goes wrong, um, if lawmakers and elders want to exert authority because somebody did something wrong, then they feel the consequence of that deeply because they are local themselves. Mm. So both the hurt and the consequence are felt locally. And so is the punishment felt locally. So contrast that with the nature of government in Australia or the US, where the consequence of 
decisions made in Canberra are not felt in Canberra at all <laughs> and are often made in the complete absence of context of community but have affecting community. That's, so that's where this stuff germinates. That's where that's this stuff the difference, comes. too, between power and authority. You know, state power is a very different thing from, um, you know, Aboriginal community and authority uh, grounded in landscapes, you know, of meaning. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's a very different thing altogether. Well, I think I think you know, the way it might be summarised is that in our cultural context, power cannot be exercised without authority. Um, mm. And that authority comes from culture. It comes from the law. Um, what power that is exercised without authority is just violence. Mm. Um, and, and so you could argue, certainly, if you use that argument, mm. that all the enactment of governmental power is simply violence. Yeah. Um, because it, it, is, it is absent of authority. Yeah. But it's not, it's not centralised and all-consuming. So, you know, your cultural authority around those waterways, you know, that might not add up to very much if you, you know, up in the dunes or something <laughs> there and somebody else is speaking for that part, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. But, you know, I, yeah. I, I had family there, I had cousins there. Um, they'd make sure I was safe in the dunes. Yeah, and, um, and I'd make sure they were safe. Um, yeah. in our country it's that it's that interdependence and you know and we we help each other out so even when somebody goes the wrong way you know we're helping out it just seems to be a different uh culture arising online and you know i, I know it it's probably seems like we've been beating up the right um side of this a, a fair bit so maybe we should switch switch over to the other side as well um you know and while it's not disinformation uh necessarily in the same way um you know, there's a lot of wrong story sort of um, flying around um, in what they're calling the woke uh, kind of left, you know, now. Um, and, and I guess it's, it's wrong story in the way that it's not, you know, offering the same kind of support and guidance to people who, who uh, make a misstep or something like that. Um, you know, that would be something, I mean, often we might regard that as the action of a child and and you know that comes under a very different you know cultural rubric as well and the way i probably the way i think about that idea of of where the left or the woke or the or the sort of reactionary communities in that particular spectrum of politics comes from is um you're right it's wrong story but it comes from the idea of rights-based cultures Mm. You know, this sort of framework that that all things have rights um, and all people have rights that must, and the pinnacle of our duty is to protect those rights for all all people to have all rights to say, speak, and do whatever they like. Um, now, the reason that that is so, um, and I get why it's appealing in the Western sense. I get why it's appealing in the European, in particular, Euro, Eurocentric sense of 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 rights for those that are otherwise voiceless. But our cultures were not voiceless. Our cultures were responsibility cultures. You know, the, the way law works in Aboriginal culture is, is with the, the more you know, the more responsible you are um, and the more responsibilities you have. And, and so mm. a responsibilities-based culture is the opposite of a rights-based culture. Of course yeah. it gives rise to rights, but it is empowered through responsibility. So even a child has responsibilities. Mm. Um, and there are obligations, obligations. Obligations, exactly. Obligations is the cultural 
idea of, and there is, their obligation often is to shut up and listen, <laughs> observe, mm. look, love, learn, look, love, you know, all the, they're, they're their obligations. Mm. Um, and then, and I, I get told, even, even I get told a grizzled old gray haired fellow like me in my cultural space, I get told to be, sh- to, to shut up by my elders. Um, so you never, you never, you're never too old. You're never too serious to, to realize your job is to shut up when you're around people with different levels of responsibility and seniority, you know, maybe yeah. both of us could learn a bit from that. <laughs> oh, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, but I think, I think that the language of rights is ultimately going to be very dangerous for us as, as a, as a species, as a custodial species, imagine if we said, imagine if in, in the story of our people, um, a few fellows got up and said, oh, I don't want to look after all these things. I can't bother. I've got rights too, you know, and those rights are to sleep, eat and, you know, sit under a tree. Um, that's the, that's, imagine the perversity of the process. If, if, if all of our coexisting species demanded their rights rather than exercise their responsibilities. We would hasten the end of this system even more than we even more than we are now. Yeah, that's it. I mean, just one of them going bad would be no. Well, I guess you know we have stories for that too. Examples when that have happened. Exactly right. Exactly no, that's right. what that those cautionary tales exist for. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I do think that um, that I, I like. To, I know it, it may be simplistic, and it certainly it certainly is simplistic. But I, I find that um, that that it's a useful way of thinking about the errors of thinking about the rights-based cultures when we talk about responsibility. Mm. Um, it, ju- it just changes the narrative in a way that I think that I, I know that whilst I might as a human being have, you know, inalienable rights under the Human Rights um, Act and or the, rights, the, the UN Declaration of Rights for Indigenous People, for instance, th- those things are statements of principle. None of them, though, go to the heart of my view of my responsibilities. None of them speak to my responsibilities. Yeah. And what is my duty in that in that space, um, or my obligation, if you prefer, in, in our traditional sort of way of talking about it? Um, well, the the, the discourse of responsibility has kind of been ruined for us. You know, when that was um, co-opted by the new right, um, nearly a couple of decades ago now. You, you know, a lot of uh, Aboriginal issues were talked about in terms of you know. Yes, rights and responsibilities, you know, um, and, and a lot of people sort of misquoted a lot of Noel Pearson's work. And, you know, I mean, he, he deeply regretted that later, of course. Um, but, yeah, that a lot of that responsibility discourse, you know, actually came to mean a very different thing from what we mean when we talk about our obligations. Well, it still does. It's still, isn't it, it's still interesting to see how it's even being perverted in the current context. So, you know, the government's recent announcements in relation to the changes to their um, welfare payment system um, with the reintroduction or the acceleration, elevation, if you like, of mutual obligation, um, loading that word obligation up, which is, to your point, sort of triggers that type of relationship. That's why I sort of prefer the responsibility word because obligation attaches something that is quite different. Obligation is something that I owe when responsibility is something that I exercise. And I think that's that's what's why I like that particular way of framing it. In of course, in culture, I do owe I owe everything to my elders, I owe everything to the system around me. Um, but in the way I exercise my life in the combined Western Indigenous systems, um, I take very seriously my responsibilities, um, both in culture and in 
um, in life. Yeah, but it's difficult because there's no real words that work in English. No, that's right. Yeah, we, you know, we're, so we're I mean, uh, the, I mean, you know, there's not a lot of abstract nouns for these sorts of things. Yeah, that's right. You know, but like for me, it's that's an adverb. And it's no, well, know, that's right. It's it's it's, it's, it's an it's adverb a, of you know you're walking active, this way, yeah. you're being or walking, you know, in yeah. responsibility, and that's got a whole different thing. Uh, so con enchi, you know, as a an adverb, that's about you know that's associated with your ear, and that you're walking with an alertness, <laughs> you know, um, you know, to your relations. Well, even and so, the way it's an, yeah. Even the way you sit in the landscape can be—you can sit with responsibility. Yeah. But, um, because, and that—that that I think is the thing that we miss in the land rights conversation. Because I, even as a law student, I used to get hung up on the idea of, hang on, are we talking about rights to the land or rights of the land? Um, and I just get myself caught up in all sorts of unnecessary, messy arguments with. <laughs> Mm. A lot, lot of white Western lawyers arguing about this idea of what do we even mean by land rights? What are we even yeah. talking about here? Well, I mean, arguably, right story, you know, is messy, you know, particularly when it's coming into dialogue with um, with wrong story that's not seeking to come alongside. It's not seeking to be in dialogue, you know. And so you kind of, you're put on the back foot from the start. And I think a lot of ground is gained you know by people who are advancing that position and by people who are you know using the the very simple very easy to do um you know tools of discourse you know that are coming from that that sort of that that side of things that wrong story story side that's that's perpetuating a lot of the asking yeah (laughs) perpetually the things that's perpetuating (laughs) a lot of the disinformation you know and a lot of those little discourse tools that Sort of, you know, and and they, for a start, you know, let's talk about just asking, you know, what does that imply? For a start, you're giving a disclaimer there that you're not responsible for anything that you say. Anything that follows the just asking, I'm protected by the fact that I'm just asking. I'm not saying anything bad here. I genuinely want to know, you know. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of really disingenuous stuff that goes on there. Yeah, and I think I think it does set up a false premise of inquiry, um, as though I actually am interested in the question I'm asking, and I may be, even be open to changing my mind. But that's but that's a fundamentally false premise. Yeah, well, well it <laughs> is because you're not, you know you're not. <laughs> look, and it's what I mean. A lot of people in the world right now are calling that bad faith discourse. Yes, you know, it's where people are entering conversations where they really aren't interested in achieving a consensus or understanding the point of view of the person they're, they're talking to. Sorry, I'll have to wait for that noise to stop. That's all right. Um, That's why I asked you about, about, about bedtime to see if it was... Um, yeah, yeah. No, it's just... Uh, okay, it's gone now. Give me the, the yeah, so... Um, um, yeah, so this, in this bad faith discourse, you know, um, half of the people present are not remotely interested in forming any kind of relation or dialogue or discourse, you know, with the people they're talking to. They're not interested in those people's position. Uh, they're interested in scoring points. And, you, you know, you can see a lot of these uh, tools that have been built up and developed and fine-tuned over two or three decades now. And, 
it's um it's interesting to see them being deployed by our community when usually you see these things being deployed against our community or against people who are trying to support our community. Well, and I think that, I do think though, the adoption of those types of discourse tools is, I think might even be argued in the sort of language of decolonization, which I'm not also necessarily, um, I don't always, doesn't always sit comfortably with me in terms of the approach we might take on that. I, I, I prefer a different way through that, but anyway, without going down that rabbit hole too far, but this idea that, that by seizing control of those tools of discourse, that we are um, taking charge of ourselves, we're moving towards self-determination because of course, in our cultural context, people didn't just ask. You looked, <laughs> you listened, yeah. you learnt, you yeah. shut up. <laughs> and you it's that alertness. That's yeah. right. You engage in the patterns of learning that, that, that were part of it. There wasn't endless questions as you wander through the streets of your country, uh, your streets being a <laughs> euphemism. It, yeah. um, it, it, it was a different mechanism of learning. So even that, and that's why I sort of think it's a weapon in, in sometimes it's used as a weapon in our communities. It's, it's a weapon of, of, um, of, of colonialization, if you like, in that we are showing that we too can use these tools um, because look, we've now learned, we, we now are not quiet anymore. You know, we're not, we're not just staying quiet and doing what you tell us. We're asking questions, we're interrogating, we're challenging. Yeah. And it's a great shame, if you like, that, that those tools are being used often to interrogate the wrong thing mm. or, or frankly, often an irrelevant thing. Yeah. Well, look, all of the best analyses um, that I've read and listened to um, you know, about the sort of the rise of disinformation and the radicalization happening from the alt-right and, you know, the woke left and all this sort of thing. The best analyses I've seen is kind of viewing them dispassionately and saying, you know, this is arising, you know, from people who've been, you know, displaced, people who've been disenfranchised uh, and, you know, growing numbers within the general population of people who no longer feel like they can trust their institutions. They no longer feel that they can trust the media, you know, or the government uh, or the education system or any of these things because they've just been betrayed too many times. And they've seen so much evidence of corruption in these institutions that, um, you know, there is no more faith in them. Um, so, yeah, when you look at the analysis from that point of view, it's, it's quite understandable. Uh, as to why people would start to turn to these, um, you know, these kind of more radicalizing uh, points of view and sources of information. Well, it's, it's also quite understandable that it's not it's not about particular forms of politics because that idea of unearned authority, you know, that that, that our cultural structures didn't have unearned authority. Um, you didn't just get it, you know. You just didn't. You know, we 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 fun, as a general principle. You know, most of us have been uncomfortable with structures of hierarchy because of the unearned authority attached to those things. Yes. Be it government, be it media, be it corporations, be it just bosses or teachers. Um, so I'm not at all surprised. And, and we know we know why. We know because that authority that is unearned is lawless, L-O-R-E-less. Mm. It's not linked to story. It doesn't, it's not informed by law, which is an abiding, overarching, under, supporting 
all-encompassing <laughs> systemic framework of obligation and connectedness. Yeah. Um, so that's what governs the way authority is delivered. So when people are absent of that, then why I'm not at all surprised that we reject all forms of that authority, whether it be left, right, or in between, or purple. It's 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 all of it is all all authority that is unearned or that is absent of law is legitimately able to be rejected, and so our people are, and they're looking for alternatives to that using the tools of alternative discourse or argument. It's a shame they're learning from the worst. That's the that, that's the thing I'm sad about. It's a, it's it's a shame. It's a shame we shouldn't take the worst from all sides and apply that in our discourse rather than the best from these sides. You know. Well. That's always been the way, you know. I mean, Aboriginal English was not developed, you know, in in dialogue with the governor of the colony. You know, Aboriginal English was, you know, coming from, you know, interactions with the Cockney guy who was like uh, doing some horrendous <laughs> stuff on the on the fringes of the settlement, you know. Um, so I guess it's always been the way that a lot of our discourses are, are developing from. Uh, some of the darker elements of the society, um, you know, but that's one thing and that spreads grapevine way. But um, how much more uh, powerful is the grapevine when it's digitized? How much more powerful is, is the grapevine when it's online and it's immediate and there isn't time to really consider everything and observe things and verify things? Um and do the appropriate amount of waiting time. Everything's immediate. Everything's fast. Um, uh, can you see any problems with the the kind of plat- uh, platforms that we're using for a lot of our communication now? Oh, look, it, it's it's um, when when I think about this from you know when you try to think about it from a couple of different perspectives of you know the optimism that sat behind these principles of the of things like the internet and social media structures you know that i you know i'm reminded of the um you know the whole way we used to think about the internet as a system you know yeah. and and it is a large version of our system um so there and but systems as we've said already inherently have obligation attached to them they have custodial story they have relational obligations across it but this is a system with almost none of those obligations and none of those frameworks of connection. Um, and that I think is the, it's, it's a perfect example of the most dangerous thing you could invent is an unbounded system with zero responsibility and obligation with zero law in it. What mm. an extraordinary experiment. What, what, if you wanted to create a doomsday machine, yeah, that's, that, that's it. An unbounded system, infinitely large with absent law. Um, so there's that there's that aspect of the of the, of the of the cyber systems and social media frameworks, but but at a human level, bringing it back to the human perspective, what I think it does is is it does what we've talked about earlier. Not only does it now make government responsibilityless or lawless in the context of their distance from us as decision makers, it also makes us lawless. It makes us distant from the decisions and actions we take because I am speaking into a void. When I type or text something into a void, nobody's on the other end of that. It's my text. It's my words. I'm not sitting next to an uncle or, or, or a brother or a cousin and having a yarn. I'm projecting something into a void that is boundless and I have no responsibility for once it leaves my fingers or leaves my screen. Um, that, that void is looking back. 
And that void is projecting things back at you as well, uh, probably more than you're putting into it. Well, it's a reflection, like like all good voids, <laughs> it's a, it's a reflection of us. You know, it's 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 something that 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 we can't ever avoid because it's a it's it's a truth of ourselves that we see reflected. You know, it makes me think that um, uh, when I think about it from the possibility, and I do like to be an optimist. As <laughs> you know, I try I try to insert some sort of optimism. When I you know where, where I got to my optimistic front about social media or more more accurately AI and the future of cybernetic spaces and things of that effect, I, I sort of was always drawn to that William Gibson quote, which you, which everybody knows about the idea of the the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. You know, the, when asked that question about what a distant future might hold, you know, he sort of replied that the future is already here. It's just not, it's just unevenly distributed. When I think about that from an indigenous perspective, I can't help but go back and say and think the future was always here. It was just written into the landscape and the and the law around us. It's just that futurists and scientists and all these other people have never bothered to look for it. They've never bothered to look back. And so I'm always reminded of the fact that, that you know, my sense is that our systems of social networking, our systems of internet emerge from, a, from playing with ancient concepts of law, playing with ancient concepts of differentiated space. But they did it, as I said before, in such a lawless way. And they did it without connection to obligation, the relationship and responsibilities they had. And they thought that the future was going in that direction without realising that if they actually looked back to where that, those differentiated spaces came from, then they'd really discover the future of that future space. Anyway, I'm probably rambling a bit. Yeah, no, but it's, it's about looking for... We, we do have a, um, an episode on AI we're working on too, so we'll probably uh, pillage your quotes that for there. that. So, <laughs> but, you know, what you're talking about, you know, again, is, is coming back to right story, but foundational story um, as part of an indigenous process of inquiry, a method of inquiry, you know, you find that foundational story. Where do you look when you're seeking the foundational story of things like AI? Well, AI, for example, where, where do you look for the foundational story? Is it to the... Um, you know, the old Hebrew stories about the golem or where, where do you go when you're looking for the foundational narrative? Uh, well, I look to, I look to our stories, um, I look, which, which, which predate golem by a few, you know, tens of thousands of years. I look to stories in, in, in my culture about, you know, stories about the Dumbalang um, and, you know, the army, you know, our, our, um, our creator who, who and, and, and the, the old people, the wise people who, who, who traveled around and before us. Um, all of which are rich in story, R- rich in story about what humility is, about what it means to claim power that you don't have, to think that you've even got power when you don't have power, um, to, 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 to not understand that to truly have power is to be humble, but to be connected. You know, the more connection, the more richness of story, the more relational you are, that's what power really is. It's not about size or weight or significance or political stature um, or wealth <laughs> in, the, in our modern Western version. Um, it's none of those things. It's not about how, what's the biggest thing you can build, what's the biggest network you can build, what's the biggest number of likes or um, friends or followers you can get on whatever social media platform you love. None of those things are mechanisms or measures of power in cultural tradition. 
How much do you think um, are these transhumanist kind of longings, this uh, this kind of weird almost ideology of transhumanism uh, that's been, you know, building up lately, how much do you think uh, that's impacting, you know, on the, the technology in all of these spaces? You know, the al- algorithms that are radicalizing young people, you know, right the way through to, um, you know, space exploration, um, et cetera, et cetera. You know, a lot of it's grounded in this idea of progress and that we want to um, shed these shameful primate, you know, bodies of these, you know, cavemen that are dressed up in clothes. But, you know, we're so horribly ashamed of <laughs> of this primitive past and we want to transcend it and upload ourselves to a glorious uh, digital dreaming. Um yeah, how what do you, what's your how much do you think those transhumanist longings are, you know, bound up in in all of this business? I'm not I'm not sure about the linkage to the conspiracy spaces, but certainly the idea that the transhumanist sort of argument, um, I still think predicates from our um, shame, our fear a sense of powerlessness in this frail, faulty human body, in this terrifying landscape. Um, so we seek to escape from it. Um, we feel powerless in this context, so we think there, and we think inevitably that there is a better place if we evolve to that. Well, one of the things that I'm constantly fascinated by, and, and I think this is particularly true of Australia, is that my view is that most Australians are terrified of this country, terrified, literally, of the landscape. It scares the hell out of them. Um, if only they could see it the way we see it. Oh, if yeah. only they could understand the joy of that, the, 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 the power and the weight of that. If they could understand that that's the evolution we need to pursue is a deeper relationship with ourselves and our land, not a lesser relationship <laughs> with ourselves and our land, because that's where true evolution sits. You know, that's mm. where true harmony and opportunity sits yeah and where right story sits yeah i mean that's where you find it ah look brother dean that, that's just uh beautiful i'm gonna have to actually stop this or the file's gonna be too big uh, to <laughs> we, didn't get onto the, we didn't get onto the um onto the legal experiment in australia we'll do that another time eh? oh, you know unless unless you want to you know uh, drop a few thoughts now like in the next few minutes but then i'll have to stop it or the file's going to be massive <laughs> Well, I was, I was thinking more in this idea that that one of the reasons that um, these wrong story or these idea of sovereign citizenry and sovereign structures, um, the language of sovereignty takes root is because the kernel of truth in that is the nature of, this, of, the, of the experiment that is Australia, the legal experiment that is Australia, the fiction, if you like, that is the Australian sort of framework of law. Um, you know, it's reasonably well understood that, you know, that, that you know, ownership or, or rights were never ceded or extinguished in battle in this country. We didn't give them over and nor were they won um, through conquest. So Aboriginal sovereignty, as an example of that, is in almost every other definition of the law around the world is still remains true. Yeah, in fact, it's it's a really interesting set of experiments that are going on where many other countries, and there's some interesting dialogue even with China, where 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 China wants to reach out to sovereign Aboriginal nations, 
<laughs> because it's probably a bit tired of dealing with Australian government. But but the better cultural story of that, of course, is because most long-standing cultures recognise the sovereignty of First Nations cultures, and they are naturally sceptical of these implanted, supplanting systems of government. So even at the heart of that, there's some kernel of truth, you know, in, in some of the international relationships that tend to emerge. There um, certainly is. And I mean, I guess, you know, an algorithm is going to follow your truth wherever it's going. I, I can remember, um, you know, during my own radicalization 10 years ago, when I was still trying to figure out how to use the internet and got sucked into a vortex on YouTube, I did finish up in um, watching a North Korean propaganda video. <laughs> which was actually, you know, reaching out in support of Australian Aboriginal communities and, you know, offering the example of um, how we've been treated and how we're still being treated as a, you know, reason that the West is completely corrupt and can't be trusted. Yeah, I think that um, I think that's an important part of the, that the, when those sorts of legitimacies are given, and I think whilst there may well be other forms of intent behind those um, um those olive branches. I do think that at their heart, there is something truth about the, the, the ancient cultures wanting to connect with other custodial and ancient cultures. And there is a sovereignty, there's a shared sovereignty in that particular approach. And also a shared fear of the other usurping powers that sweep the world, sweep the globe, sweep the globe. Uh, look, I mean, I, mean I, can, I can remember, you know, if I didn't have quite as many critical fa faculties, I'm sure I would have been radicalised uh, the same way I'm seeing a lot of people being radicalised now. I mean, I can remember, you know, um, looking on these YouTube channels that were, you know, um, you know, I, I guess they were they were basically propaganda um, and and lots of insane critical. Uh, I mean, sorry, um, just insane conspiracy theories uh, a lot of the time. But they did report things that were important and that I wouldn't have found otherwise because they weren't being reported in the mainstream media. You know, so when the Iranian Secret Service, you know, um, busts like 50 terror terrorist cells and takes out more terrorists than, than the United States sort of did in the entire war on terror, they do it in one day. Um, nobody reported that <laughs> in Australia or the US. Um, but I did get that news on these, these weird little... Uh, you know, websites and YouTube channels, and they deliver that news. And I'd be like, ah, oh, that's interesting. And then I'd look it up elsewhere. And, you know, you triangulate and make sure that what you're getting is right, you know, and you are, oh, thank you, brother. And then you keep listening. And they're like, and that's why uh, President Obama is Satan. Look, look at the back of his head. There's a demon coming out the back of his head. And it's like, well, you know, so the, there was some good story mixed up in there for a minute. Um, and well, then that, sounds, that sounds like a particularly good story too, just not one based in fact or anything. <laughs> That's <laughs> it. Um, it proves but, it. But, the Iranian <laughs> Secret Service proves it. It's like, That's oh right. But but on the on the on the way that links back to the concept of sovereignty, I think is is it, it sort of really is interesting because. If you, there are a number of really good, interesting thought experiments emerging, I think, around this space that are, that are worthwhile talking about another time, maybe. But this idea that sovereignty itself is really a thought experiment, as we know, you can't own the land. Um, it's just, a, it's just a, it's a, it's a fiction. All forms of fiction. The marketplace, you know, the financial system is a fiction. 
These are all false things that are traded in for some sort of false idea of what, what, what really matters. So the same thing with the framework of law. It just holds some certain, you know, inviolate truths to itself, even though they might be fictions, they are truths to itself. Um, so when we talk about it here, when we talk about the idea that, you know, there's that idea that because we never ceded rights or given, we never gave ownership or gave over ownership or ceded rights or were never beaten in conquest or battle where our rights were extinguished and laws were extinguished, um, then the fundamental principle of sovereignty or, or more accurately of British law governing the sovereignty, be, becoming the framework of sovereignty for this nation is one of these sort of concepts we call an original sin. You know, so, so it's, it's if the fundamental principle of the legal framework of the country begins with a lie, then all things that derive from that must also be a lie. And mm. that, that sort of principle, I think, is an interesting sort of thought experiment to take you down the path that takes us back to these sovereign citizens, takes us back down this sort of idea that, you know, all sins, or all laws rather, you know, flow from this sin and therefore they have no power over me. And all I need to do to, to reject them is to speak them into the world, you know, be gone, Satan. Um, your laws are invalid. Um, I no longer believe in you and whisper magical somehow. 230 years of history disappears mm. um, that's, the that's a good story. point i think a lot of a lot of this stuff has the hallmarks of kind of magical thinking it's true. and you know <laughs> and I, I guess you know that kind of you know everyday magic's not sorcery or anything weird like that but just that sort of everyday you know like calling out the name of your names from your old people or calling out you know um you know, to like get rid of bad spirit or energy or whatever. And, you know, all the different things that you do as your everyday magics um, and the sort of language that you use around a lot of that. I, I guess there's a, a lot of it that has that kind of ritual feel, you know, like a lot of the, you know, the phrases uh, that they're saying, um, they're kind of, they're using a lot of repetition and alliteration and rhyme. You know what I mean? Um you know, there's well, a lot, there's a lot to be said for it being ritualistic. <laughs> I, would, I would even argue that law as a practice, the Western traditions of law are, are, are magical thinking. Oh. You know, it's complete with robes, complete with, you know, with theatre, um, complete with ritual. Yeah. Um, and, and so I'm not at all surprised that we seek to take on some of those things because they have the power of magic. They have, that is distant, it, the exercise of power at a distance which is ultimately mm. one of those definitional points of magic. Mm. Uh, and law is an example of that, um, which is one of the reasons why I, I love the fact that some of the other thought experiments we're engaging in are, you know, playing it back on itself, you know, playing the legal framework back on itself. And, and you know, Mabo gave us a really interesting set of examples around this idea that, that when the high court began to actually interrogate its thinking around where Mabo might take it, famously it arrived at the conclusion oh god we wouldn't exist um if we actually if we actually follow this principle through we better, we better write some rules <laughs> we better write some interpretations here otherwise but, we're uh, going to but did trouble. you just refer to the marbo case as a thought experiment <laughs> <laughs> no the, the thought experiments that flow from that i know although, although interestingly i'm just being cheeky you know what i'm like yeah, but the origins of the marbo case as you know were indeed the sort of idea of of, of, of a group of young people arguing what we need is a test case here. Um, yeah, and, and hey, hey, that was Jewish lawyers, eh? <laughs> See? It was Jewish lawyers what done that. Now you look there, brother. Something. <laughs> <laughs> I, bet, I bet they're related to somebody else too. We'll need to we'll check that out. 
But um, but on the um, on on the on the issue of where the thought experiments are now taking us, what what you're right. One branch is taking us down this sort of sovereign citizen argument of of whispering things into the dark and declaring things to not really be real. Um, but another path is this idea of you know so if if the thought experiment of sovereignty um, is flawed then how then australia has no permission to be here you know the, the government the country of australia as we know it is is unpermissioned it doesn't exist here mm. so in order for us to negotiate a treaty or to determine rights and obligations we need to construct our own nations our own individual nations that can can then be empowered to negotiate and engage in treaty conversations mm. and that, that's that's the Yadinji experiment which is up in that sort of the geographic area of Australia uh, that describes itself as Cairns, which is their sort of way of framing that they are not, not part of the of the nation of Australia. Uh, it's one of those experiments, and it's one I actually quite like, and I should, for, for full disclosure, declare that I'm an official ambassador to the Yadinji nation from um, the Waramai people because I, I, I think it's a really interesting case. It's a really interesting example of them, of that community, the Yadinji people, sort of arguing that and declaring sovereignty including rejection of all forms of you know, Australian Commonwealth-issued identity, um, so as to create a nation that the Commonwealth of Australia can treaty with, because that's mm. ultimately the fundamental risk we have in the historical negotiations around treaty, as famously stated by, um, I was going to give another appellation, but I'll just call him the you know, ex-Prime Minister John Howard, rather than what I might otherwise call him, that, um, that a treaty cannot, the country cannot treaty with itself. Um, was his famous sort of statement. Mm. Um, so the Yadinji nation have taken that up to say, well, well, we are not of Australia. We are a sovereign nation. And now, once we declare that, including with their own stamps and currency and police force and all the, all the things that govern that, um, we can now engage in treaty with you. Well, there's a lot of that. There are, yeah. you know, the Murawari have declared a republic, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and they've sent that paperwork to the Queen. Um, but there are a lot of nations following suit. That's right. Um, That's right. With varying degrees of, you know, some people are just, you know, quite simply going, well, you know, um, Australia is illegitimate, you know, uh, it's, you know, not by laws of discovery or laws of conquest or anything else can you lay claim to this place. It's as illegitimate as, you know, Queensland's claim to New Guinea back in the day that was overthrown by the UN. Uh, so therefore, we declare our sovereignty. We're a sovereign nation, sovereign people. Uh, here we're making our own stamps you know what I mean um, so there's a lot of that going on it's quite legitimate but then there's also you know some places where it's getting mixed up with them you know like I've heard this conspiracy theory um, you know related to a couple of those movements uh, now that's about you know the idea that uh, King Charles will be cor coronated uh, very soon and so there's a really big push uh, for treaty recognition these sorts of things and that the role of these is to um, uh, extinguish our sovereignty and have us finally cede our lands uh, just in time for uh, King Charles to perform his first act as a sovereign uh, monarch, which will be to um, uh, make Australia a republic and legitimise the, the, the colony itself uh, as a nation. Um, I've, I've heard that. <laughs> um, you know, I've, I've heard worse. I've heard, I've heard that Queen Elizabeth herself is um is Gumilaroy. You know, people are like, yeah, I knew her granny. She's from Walgett, you know. 
<laughs> well, I, I think I've, I think I've run into her in the street up there, but um, <laughs> I, I would, I would look at, like with all good stories though. There's some, there's some kernels in that because, you know, I have no doubt that the good constitutional minds of the of, of British legal system and British legal tradition would have very serious questions about, about the structure of laws that govern this country. Um, and the legitimacy of those laws, given the history, given the explicit instruction, you know, to Captain Cook, you know, to, to, to negotiate with and make friends with and allies of the oh, yeah. native peoples of this land. <laughs> so that, that I think there's a lot. I have no doubt that there's um, that there's some good minds saying we need, what we need to do is put some framework around this. So the quicker we can become a republic, we can put some better laws in place because what we've got now is is a bit thin. Yeah, but but none of that necessarily is about, as you know, the issues of actual sovereignty. Those are all issues of legal fabric that sort of we use as ways of interpreting this concept of sovereignty. And that's the beauty of something like sovereignty. There is no hard, hard and sharp definition of it. And in fact, it's many things to many people. And I think, I think to, you know, just to give you a, a gift to finish our conversation, I actually think the, the words uh, of the Uluru Statement from the Heart uh, are, are the most useful way or the most poetic way of reflecting on principles of sovereignty when they talk about the idea of spiritual sovereignty um, rather than the idea of land sovereignty. Now, I've, I've wrestled with that. I care deeply about the Uluru Statement from the Heart, but I've wrestled with that because the lawyer in me talks about or worries about the idea of what are you ceding, what are you giving up when you claim spiritual sovereignty, when the rest of the system speaks about sovereignty in a very different concept. But as I get older and, you know, get more comfortable with ambivalence, um, I, I'm quite drawn um, to a declaration of spiritual sovereignty. No matter what you try to take from us in the land, no matter what you claim to, claim to own from us in the landscape, we will always have spiritual sovereignty over this land. Nice. Well, that's a perfect place to end. I'm going to have to stop recording because this file's getting massive now. And I'm also going to have to go in because uh, Meg's going to kill me yeah. <laughs> for staying out, uh, staying out with my mates. Um, <laughs> I'll be in trouble too, but uh, you know, but my my kids don't, my kids are not not that young, so they'll be. Uh, I know you got some dad stuff to do, which is good. <laughs>